This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Discover more ways to enhance flavor and maximize beer yields with Salvo. Now available in varieties like Sultana, Trident, Lotus, Calypso, Cascade, and many more. Discover how Salvo can help boost your brew at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to getbrewninja.com and using the code BREWNINJA21. Pasteurization shouldn't get the bad rap that it does. In fact, it can be really beneficial to beer and does not harm the flavor. This week on the show, a thorough test of an age-old debate. Hi, my name's Allie Schultz. I am the sensory manager at New Belgium Brewing Company. When I first entered this industry in the early 2000s, pasteurization was kind of a dirty word among craft brewers. The narrative was that pasteurization was something terrible that the really big brewers did to their beer and that fresh, unpasteurized craft beer was somehow better. Sentiment has changed quite a lot uh, two decades later, but talk about that pasteurization debate. What do the arguments today look like? Right. You're, you're totally right in that pasteurization is has been considered a dirty word in the past. And I think we are starting to see more literature out there showing that there are beneficial aspects to pasteurization. Not only, obviously, the microbial and physical and enzymatic stability that come along with pasteurization, but actually can be beneficial in terms of decreasing the aged flavor of beer. Now, it's tough, though, because we have a lot of previous research that shows that pasteurization is harmful to beer. So, you know, oh my gosh, we're cooking the beer. It's going to have a ton of like heated, quote, pasteurization flavor is literally the phrase that I read in one paper. And I was like, what is, what is that? I don't, I don't understand what they mean by that because it's kind of like when you're defining something using the word and defining it, like, it, are we talking about, um, again, that cooked aroma? Are we talking about a decrease in fresh aroma or an increase in aged aromas? So we're seeing still a lot of those those papers in the literature that show that um, 
pasteurization is harmful. And there are still some of those being produced um, more currently. Again, a lot of that research has been done in the past, um, but it's still in the brewing psyche. And now we're starting to see more of that, the analyses that show that pasteurization can be beneficial to beer. It isn't something to be afraid of, nor are you less crafty if you use pasteurization on your beers. All right. And you set out to bring new information into the debate. Talk about what exactly you wanted to accomplish. Definitely. Uh, So we really wanted to add a couple different things to the pasteurization debate. In a lot of the research, it's done on lagers. Um, You know, it is one of the biggest styles worldwide, but that's changing now. And so we really wanted to do this on both bright and hazy IPAs. So some of the literature is showing research on IPAs, but there wasn't a focus on hazy IPAs. And especially in the United States, that has become such a big beer style that it really, we felt remiss if we hadn't analyzed that alongside bright IPAs. The other thing with IPAs is they are arguably more sensitive to um, flavor, like they're more sensitive to aging. And so an IPA will, all other things being equal, age more rapidly than a lager would. And so we wanted to to do this research on a beer, on, on a couple beer styles, both the bright and hazy IPAs, that are more susceptible to aging more quickly. So it's kind of a worst case scenario, if you will. The other thing we added to it is, you know, a lot of the literature out there has, has um, a lot of chemistry done on it. You know, we're analyzing this specific compound and looking to see whether it increases or decreases over time. But very few of the, re- very few um, literature articles actually had any sensory component to it. And so we really wanted to bring that in too, because, you know, of course, I'm very biased towards it as a sensory scientist. But you can say that something could change in in the chemistry or the chemical compounds, but we don't know if that would actually affect the perception of the beer. And so that's why sensory is so important is because it's that holistic view of the beer and whether or not those changes that we're measuring in the compounds actually come through in the flavor of the beer itself. Okay, let's hear about how you set up these trials. Yeah, so we it was it was kind of a lot to set up, but it I enjoyed the challenge. We wanted to do this on two brands. So we did it with um, both New Belgium beers, Voodoo Ranger IPA, which uh, was pasteurized. We did a pasteurized versus unpasteurized for both of these brands. So Voodoo Ranger IPA and Voodoo Ranger Juicy Haze. And within each of those brands, it was the same batch of beer and we split it off into two different streams and we left one portion unpasteurized and then we pasteurized another portion of it. And we pasteurized each of the beers at a different PU. So the Voodoo Ranger IPA, the bright IPA, we pasteurized at 25 PUs. And for the Juicy Haze, we pasteurized that at 100 PUs. And both of these were with flash pasteurization. And, and tell so, me, how did you end up on those, uh, those numbers? Where, where did 25 and 100 come from? It's actually just our, our standard for pasteurizing these. Um, okay. 
within the within New Belgium, and we typically pasteurize juicy haze at that higher PU at 100 because we have found that that results in better haze stability. So it isn't because it had a higher microbial load; it is simply to make the haze more stable. And so it was really important for us when designing this study that we would have a true control. I was very insistent on having the same batch of beer pasteurized and unpasteurized. I didn't want to use a different batch because as I'm sure everybody that brews beer can relate to even with the best intentions, you use yeast, it's a it's a living product, like you can't really have a, a we wanted to have as close of a true control as possible. So that's why we had one batch and then split it up. And then we really wanted to test the beer throughout its entire shelf life. That included fresh. And when I'm saying fresh, I'm talking about like, you know, a week old. Uh, and we wanted to do that through six months. Now, both of these beers have a shorter shelf life than six months. I think their shelf life is about um, five months each. But we really wanted to extend it even a bit further to six months to really capture like if any changes happen even beyond that six months. Because I know, you know, a lot of breweries do tend to have six-month shelf lives, and we wanted this to be applicable to the brewing industry more broadly. For the storage conditions for this beer, I understand that a lot of breweries can't help but store their beer warm, especially sometimes at distributors or on the shelves. But that really ended up being a lot of different variables to try and manage in the study. So we just chose to store it. Uh, Both of the beers were stored at four degrees Celsius for the entirety of their shelf life. And there was, for each brand, there was one time point at six months, and we did store one set of each brand at 20 degrees Celsius for six months, but only analytical chemistry measured that beer at the very end at six months. So we did, chemistry did try and do that. It was a lot easier for them to just run one extra sample than it was for sensory to do that. So we were relying on the uh, analytical data to um, provide data on that last six month, 20 degrees Celsius time point. All right. Speaking of analytical data, why don't you tell us what you, what exactly you looked at? Oh my gosh, all of the things. <laughs> so um, they did hop esters, yeast and hop volatiles, organic acids, total humulinones, total isoalpha acids and alpha acids, vicinal diketones, fermentable carbohydrates, and trace metals. Pretty much everything but the kitchen sink. Okay. And then um, importantly, you married that with sensory. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the sensory data, I, we decided to do a 2AFC, which stands for a two alternative forced choice, also known as a paired preference for sensory. The reason we chose this test, um, I'm sure a lot of people out there are very familiar with terms like a triangle test or even the tetrad test. The 2AFC is actually more statistically powerful than either the tetrad or the triangle test. And so again, we really wanted to try and do the most conservative methodology we could. If there was a difference, we were going to detect it. And that's why we decided to do a 2AFC. Do me a favor for, uh, there's probably folks that are not familiar with that paired preference um, test. So why don't you describe how it works? Absolutely. So the 2AFC asks, you're presented 
Each panelist is presented with two samples, and we ask them which sample has more of attribute X. So which sample has more tropical? Which sample has more papery? And we had a whole list of different attributes that we went through. And so I think it was um, like 10 or 11 attributes, both true to brand attributes like tropical, citrus, myrcene, and then also aged attributes like damascanone, papery, age. And then we also included sweet and bitter for both of those. So the panelists are going back and forth between the test and control. Of course, they don't know which is the test and which is the control. And they're rating of those two beers, which one has higher of each of those attributes. We ended up having a lot of panelists. We ran this study at both our Fort Collins, Colorado brewery and our Asheville, North Carolina brewery. And so um, we just shipped beer to both sites and then ran the exact same um, study at both of them. So we had quite a few panelists, which allowed for um, really statistically powerful data. And then since sensory is all about statistics, uh, we determined that an attribute would be considered significant if the p-value is less than 0.01 and d-prime is greater than 1. So a lot of people are probably pretty familiar with a p-value. It's a very common statistical parameter for determining if something is significant. You hear a lot like 10% significant, 5% significant, 1% significant. Yeah, but so help we were, us out with d-prime because we don't know what yeah. that means. Right. And that's the really unusual one. And it's not even that common yet in sensory. It's um, founded in Thurstonian modeling, which we don't really need to get into the details of that, but um, it's it's a better, um, more stable way of measuring underlying differences between samples that is independent of the different sensory methods used. So even though we were always just going to use the two AFC for this, it could then be compared to other methods that. Um, like the tetrad or the triangle. The really awesome part about D-prime is it, it has ties to consumer relevance. So in the literature, in the sensory literature, if the D-prime is greater than one, consumers can tell a difference between the samples. And so that's why we really wanted to have both the p-value and the d-prime to establish significance because it's almost like p-value is related to our expert taste panel um, and, and whether or not they're perceiving a difference, but they're highly trained. They're not really a typical consumer. So by including d-prime, we were then able to draw correlations between if consumers would be able to tell a difference between these samples. Okay. And then you also looked at Hayes. Um, why don't you talk about what you did for that? For Hayes, we unfortunately didn't have our turbidity meter working at this time. So instead, we did visual comparisons, which actually worked out quite well. What we ended up doing is we had 16-ounce clear glass vials. And whenever we were going to run a time point, we would pour the test and control of each beer into these vials and let them sit overnight in the refrigerator. So if any sedimentation or settling were going to happen, we could view that. Then the following morning, we took photos of it and examined the beer for any differences in sedimentation or haze between the pasteurized and unpasteurized samples. Coming up. 
pasteurization is already conferring a lot of these benefits to beers. And so for there to not be a difference, that's a win in itself. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This episode is brought to you by RAR Malting Company, celebrating 175 years of the malt of reputation. Since 1847, RAR Malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers everywhere. RAR can help your brewery maintain quality and consistency. Our technical center provides testing and analytical expertise on barley, malt, beer, and other fermented beverages and ingredients. Learn more about our services at bsgcraftbrewing.com. Are you looking to reduce CO2 usage, increase capacity, reduce TPO, or scale up hard seltzer production? The Alpha Laval Aldox has been the industry standard for de-aerated water production for over four decades. Simply plug and play, DA water is available a few minutes after power up and offers lower installation and operating costs than other technologies. Like all of Alpha Laval's brewery modules, Aldox is pre-assembled and pre-tested in our workshop before installation. Let the leaders in brewing innovation help you meet your production quality and sustainability goals with Aldox. Visit us at alphalaval.us slash MBAA to learn more. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Northern Illinois holds its fall meeting December 1st at the Goose Island Clybourne Brewhouse. The Master Brewers DEI Committee has a webinar on psychological safety December 13th. The 2023 Master Brewers Conference will be October 6th through the 8th in Seattle, Washington. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Thanks for listening to the Master Brewers podcast. Did you know that Master Brewers offers a wide range of technical resources for breweries of all sizes? Whether you're new to brewing or a seasoned expert, join our community to connect with key players in the profession and stay up to date on the latest in brewing science, technology, and operations. Become a member of Master Brewers with code BEER2022 to save 20% on your membership dues now through December 31st. United We Brew. Now back to the show. Well, 
well, should we get into the results or is there anything else you want to say about um, sort of the setup? Oh gosh, I don't think so. I think I covered it all. (laughs) Cool. Well, tell us what you found out then. Let's start with the analytical results. So it's not terribly exciting, which is, I guess, kind of a good thing, that there were no significant differences overall in the pasteurized and unpasteurized beers for either IPA or Juicy Haze. That being said, I did want to note that there were a couple trends in the acetate esters. And these acetate esters are things that we do want in our beer. Esters tend to give fruitier components to beers. So there's something positive that we want in there. What we saw for both Juicy Haze and IPA was a decrease in these acetate esters, specifically isoamyl acetate and phenylethyl acetate. So Again, these weren't significant changes, but we did see that over the course of shelf life, we saw a drop in those two esters. And this was even more pronounced in a beer that was stored at 20 degrees Celsius that we only measured at six months. So it was stored a lot warmer and we saw an even bigger decrease in these acetate esters. So even less of those fruity aromas occurred when the beer was unpasteurized and warm. This decrease in acetate esters that we saw is actually something that's known in the literature for unpasteurized beers. Really, the hypothesis behind this is that these yeast esterases, so an enzyme present from the yeast, is breaking apart or hydrolyzing um, these esters, and that's why we're seeing a decrease in them. So that's why pasteurization actually doesn't result in as significant a loss because we are denaturing those enzymes so they cannot be breaking apart these esters like they do in the unpasteurized beer. Was that uh, picked up in the sensory as well? It was not. So we did not specifically ask panelists about these two compounds. Uh, isoamyl acetate smells like candy banana and phenylethyl acetate, I believe, is more honey-esque. So those were not any of the attributes that we chose. The attributes that we chose to ask panelists on were taken directly from our expert taste panel's descriptions of the beers. So Uh, mercine, tropical, citrus, but we would expect these acetate esters to influence those fruity perceptions, so tropical, citrus, that kind of thing. And the sensory data is arguably even more boring than the analytical data (laughs) because we saw no differences between any of the beers over any of the time points for both the D-prime, which again shows consumer relevance. So, because D prime was not significant, consumers wouldn't notice a difference. And even the P values with our highly trained panel, they didn't notice any significant differences between um, the pasteurized and unpasteurized samples for either brand at any time point. So did that surprise it, you? Was that a was that a, you know were you shocked by that? I I kind of was, and to be honest, I was <laughs> I was a little bummed when I I. We had this data and I went and talked to my boss and I was like, Dana, I, I'm kind of bummed that there isn't a difference because I, to be honest, expected that the unpasteurized samples would perform worse. I was expecting there to be a difference in favor of pasteurization. And he kind of had to talk me down a little bit because he was like, well, but no difference is also really good too. Because there are a lot of benefits with pasteurization, like we just talked about in terms of microbial Uh, visual and um, physical stability. And so 
pasteurization is already conferring a lot of these benefits to beers. And so for there to not be a difference, that's a win in itself. But I, I was pretty surprised that there wasn't a difference, especially as, um, as powerful as our statistics were for this study. Yeah, I mean, across all the sensory and all the analytics, that's, that, that's, that's pretty surprising to me. You just mentioned micro, but we really didn't talk about micro yet. Is it safe to assume that um, neither of those beers uh, had any micro hits? Yeah, there were no micro hits at all. And the micro team also did, um, they did, I want to say evaluate, they, they plated and analyzed the beers at each time point and again, found no growth as expected. Uh, this was a pretty straightforward analysis for them. Um, so, yeah. All right. Well, why don't you tell us more about how, um, how pasteurization ended up affecting haze? The haze was interesting. So for the IPA, which is our bright beer, at one month, everything was bright. Both the pasteurized and unpasteurized samples were exactly the same. And that was actually the case through three months and even at the end at six months. But the pasteurized and unpasteurized samples showed no difference between each other, which I was a little surprised about. I think I would have expected that the unpasteurized samples might have had more sedimentation um, or perhaps more haze. But what we did see in the Bright IPA is that a haze did develop starting at about three months and that continued through six months uh, where the haze increased. And I shouldn't probably have been surprised because it's likely due to the known reaction of proteins and polyphenols binding to each other to form large visible chains in the beer. And Again, that's not really uncommon in beers, but I was surprised to see such a drastic change in IPA even just after three months. But it was, there wasn't a difference between the pasteurized and unpasteurized. So uh, that made me feel a little bit better again towards pasteurization, not creating any differences in, in the visual aspect of the beer. And since so many people drink with their eyes, that was nice to see as well. Absolutely. Okay. What are the key takeaways here, Allie? For me, and it isn't just studying pasteurization, but I would argue studying any aspects related to beer where you might be making conclusions about the flavor of it. It's really important to include both analytical chemistry and sensory analyses. I'm biased. I know I'm a sensory scientist, but it's so tough for me to read a paper that's commenting on, oh, there's all these differences in these compounds, but we don't actually know if it's important. So, for example, in our research, we did find that those esters were decreasing in unpasteurized beer, but we didn't really see that in the sensory data. We didn't see that the unpasteurized beers were less fruity than the pasteurized ones. And so I think the, com the combination of chemistry and sensory is really powerful because they both add something to the picture of these beers um, and just really feed off each other and build that. And then all of this combined, both the analytical, the micro, the sensory data, is showing that flash pasteurization doesn't harm beer flavor, even with heat-sensitive styles like bright and hazy IPAs. 
And for the hazy IPA, we even nuked it at 100 PUs. So even at those high PUs, we didn't perceive a difference. So, you know, all of this to me indicates that pasteurization shouldn't get the bad rap that it does. In fact, it can be really beneficial to beer and does not harm the flavor. All right. Awesome. Ali, is it safe to assume that your TPOs were super low? I think maybe the combination of DO and pasteurization is at least partly to blame for some of pasteurization's negative connotations. That's a really good point that, yeah, our, our TPOs were below like 25 PPB, I think. So we try and um, keep them quite low. And our canning lines, which is uh, these, these beers were canned, um, are really efficient. The, the other thing I would say, too, is I understand that flash pasteurization isn't something that all breweries have access to. So for me, the next steps in this would be to do this with flash versus tunnel pasteurization, because I think that would be really fascinating. Um, when I gave this talk at the ASBC, a lot of brewers had those questions because they only had access to a tunnel pasteurizer. and I do have a source for where we could get beers um, that are tunnel pasteurized. So I think, you know, there might be a part two to this study, which would be um, really exciting. So again, I could further put to bed the assumption that pasteurization is bad for beer. That was Ali Schultz here on the Master Brewers podcast. If you like hearing about research like this, you'll probably agree that it's even better live where you can ask presenters like Allie questions directly instead of waiting for me to ask them questions. Now's a great time to put the next Master Brewers Conference on your calendar. That's October 6th through the 8th, 2023 in Seattle. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers Podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Mall, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. <laughs>